to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. We're going to spend the rest of the hour today continuing a series we launched earlier this month with The Atlantic, as that publication rolls out its project called Inheritance, a multi-part initiative exploring the legacy and experiences of black Americans that have been mostly left out of our history books. Here on Detroit Today, we're highlighting this work by speaking with some of the writers who are contributing to that series. Today, I'm joined by Adam Harris, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the forthcoming book, The State Must Provide. His brand new piece for The Atlantic's Inheritance Project is about an historic riot in Utah, Alabama, and the deep roots of America's political legacy. Adam, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. So you start this piece in a really personal way through letting the reader into your childhood view of your grandfather who grew up in Alabama in the Jim Crow era. Tell us about him and why his personal story seemed like the right launching point for the deep dive into the history and policy that you explore in this piece. Yeah, so my granddad was born in 1931 in Sumter County, Alabama, uh, which is, you know, right, it's the county right next to the county which I'm writing about in this story. And um, as I as I was kind of poking around and, and thinking about, um, you know, the things that shaped Alabama's political legacy, the things that shaped America's political legacy, you know, I was, I was in the EJI files, the Equal Justice Initiative, and I found that, you know, the year, less than a year before my granddad was born, over the 4th of July weekend, uh, three Black people were lynched in Sumter County. Um, and I just thought about, you know, the legacy of violence, the legacy of terror, and how that is directly applicable to uh, America's political landscape. And I thought, you know, this is a man who I watched growing up, um, who was in love with the news, right, who was in love with politics, but who always kind of knew the way that things happen, the way that things work. Um, and, and conversations with him and conversations with um, my, his, you know, his immediate uh, family, you know, that older generation, um, you know, they always kind of had this, this idea of the way that politics worked and why things were the way they were, as I, as I write in the piece. Um, and so that was kind of the launching point to say, you know, I can tell the story of uh, the tenuous nature of American progress through, um, you know, my grandfather, through this, this, this man who, who uh, grew up in it, who grew up in the silty clay of Sumter County, um, and who knows the stories and, and the, the roots of, of that legacy that's buried there. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like... For us as African Americans, that's always uh, a powerful, a powerful echo. The the things we hear from our relatives, close relatives, who experienced these things firsthand, and it's one of those things that reminds us of how close it all is to the modern day. Uh, my father's born in 1933 in Mississippi and and is not allowed to vote in his home state until he's in his mid-30s because of, of, of Jim Crow. Uh, I, I feel like any African-American you ask about this kind of experience and sort of how how those those inequalities are framed in your mind, it always starts with a personal story from somebody that we knew. It's not somebody we read about in a book a long time ago. I mean, your grandfather, my father, these are men who, who raised us. 
Exactly. Um, it is, it is, you know, it just goes to, as you were mentioning, you know, it goes to the point of how recent all of this, all of this was, you know, my mom was born in 1963 in Andalusia, Alabama. And, you know, um, just miles down the road, you know, that's where you know, four little girls are, are, are murdered mm-hmm. in, in a church in Birmingham. So this is all, this is all very, very recent. Yeah. So uh, like many Southern states, you point out that Alabama hid aspects of its history for years, omitting them from textbooks and disregarding them in classrooms, which meant black people learned their history from one another. And that really reinforces the deeper cultural importance of these relationships with our elders, but it also really highlights the gaps that exist in in other people's understanding or knowledge of these things. And I think that helps explain some of the tensions that we have now. For us, this is gospel. This is what we grew up reading and hearing and listening about. For other people, it, it seems much more distant. Yeah, I think, and that's that's in part due to this, you know, the, the reason why history textbooks um, and things are shaped the way that they are is, is to kind of reinforce this idea of, um, it's, it's sort of like the myth of, of consistent American progress, when in, in reality, um, the American project uh, has been, um, you know, we sort of wasted these critical junctures when things could be better. You you, you have reconstruction where, where uh, you know, it's, it's this moment of radical political reimagination. And then um, immediately after you start having these riots, like the one in Utah, like the ones that would follow when you fall in, in Mobile, um, that, that literally usurp democracy, that overturn elections um, and ensure the status quo um, and, and this sort of uh, regime, this reign of, of terror um, are kind of ensured by uh, this legacy that we explicitly omit to, to grapple or to, to sort of hold on to this myth of continual progress. Yeah. So so I want to go back to your grandfather for a second. You spend a lot of time in the piece talking about how the things that he experienced in, in Alabama as a young man shaped his outlook on on the world but but I want to go back to this very specific thing that that happened um, this 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 massacre this this lynching and and what effect that in particular you think had on uh, on your grandfather and the way that that he saw not only his place in this country but but the country more more generally what 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 did that elicit from him? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, my granddad was born in 1931 and the, and the, the political atmosphere that he was born into was shaped by this riot, right. By this, um, by this act of political terror that occurred in the, in the 1870s. So 50 years before, um, 60 years before he's born, right. There's a riot that they completely uh, sort of reshapes uh, politics in Alabama where, um, you know, Republicans, um, more liberal, progressive, kind of the radical Republicans um, were in power in the, uh, in the governor's mansion, in the state house, the congressional delegation were, were led by by Republicans at the time. And, um, you know, on, on October 25th, 1870, um, at the courthouse in Utah, Alabama, there's a Democratic rally and a Republican rally. Uh, the Democratic rally ends a little bit early and um, they they move over to the Republican rally, and the Republican rally is consisted of about two thousand or so black men, um, you know, a, a handful of white men. Um, but you know, 
there's this point where the Democrats had been sort of drinking and uh, becoming increasingly hostile. Um, one of the speakers is yanked from the stage and then a shot is fired from one of the Democrats into the black crowd. Um, and then several more shots, right? It's, it's a flurry of gunshots. Four people die, more than 50 people are, are injured, all black. Um, and uh, at, at you know a congressional hearing uh, to investigate the Ku Klux Klan, to investigate the, the um, kind of the political usurping of, of uh, Alabama, um, you know, one of the senators who was there, who was speaking, said, you know, they emptied their guns into the backs of those people. Um, and that that effectively, by, by doing that, it was it was days before uh, Election Day. Uh, it scared people away from the polls, um, you know, numbers where, you know, you'd have a Republican who was winning by 2,000 votes. They were all of a sudden, you know, losing by 35 votes. Um, you know, this was, uh, historians sort of call it a coup. Um, they, they say that this election was stolen. Um, and after stealing that election, they, they learned that, you know, through the fact that there were no consequences, there was sort of impunity in this, uh, that sort of political status quo just continued. Um, and the, the reign of terror continued into the birth of my grandfather in the sharecropping South of 1931. Um, and so, you know, his, his parents, his grandparents um, grew up with that. They grew up in that. Um, and, and so he lived, you know, as you mentioned, you know, 30 some odd years on, it was 30 some odd years on before he, you know, could enjoy the full rights of citizenship mm -hmm. in America, um, and, and, you know, be able to vote with the Voting Rights Act, a strong Voting Rights Act where, where states needed preclearance. Um, and so I guess to, to get back to your point, I think the way that that shapes his worldview is, to, is just that, you know, he hears these stories from his parents. I hear these stories from my parents, from him. Um, and and it, it sort of lets you know everything you need to know, right? There's a moment of progress and America does not respond well to Black progress. Yeah. And time after time, when you see Black progress, um, it is followed by violence. It is followed by um, these intentional um, suppression efforts to, to sort of re-establish the status quo. Mm. I'm talking with uh, Adam Harris, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the forthcoming book, The State Must Provide. We're talking about his piece in the series of pieces that The Atlantic is doing as part of a project called Inheritance, which is an effort to explore the legacy and experiences of black Americans that have been largely left out of our history books. Uh, we're talking about uh, how the uh, how the the absence of uh, understanding of this history frames people's understanding today, but also framed uh, the ongoing discrimination that African Americans uh, have faced in 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 our country. The lack of knowledge that fuels uh, inequality in America. As always, we'd love to hear from you during the segment as well. Uh, tell us what parts of our country's history you think need to be retold or more fully told? Uh, have the recent calls for racial justice uh, caused you to think differently about the role of race in our nation's history? Uh, we all would also love to hear from you if you're uh, African-American and learning more about history and learning more about how it powers the inequalities that we see around us today and wondering if there's a better way to include 
that information, those stories in the teaching of history in our schools uh, and in our communities. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and uh, and we'll try to work you into uh, the conversation. Uh, Adam, there is there is kind of a, a response to what happens in 1870 that you deal with in, in, in the piece, and it's not a response that's particularly helpful. Uh, talk about how that uh, kind of inculcates the idea that, um, that what happened uh, to the black men who were killed uh, in 1870 was okay and that uh, things were not going to change. Yeah, so after the riot, um, there is this, this, uh, there's a court case. So, so a, um, a white clerk goes to Demopolis to file a, a complaint against Jonathan J. Jolly, against, you know, a handful of, of Democrats who, who took part in um, this massacre. And um, the federal government ends up framing the charges um, under uh, the Enforcement Act to say that you know, the federal government has a responsibility to protect Black people um, from explicit acts of violence by private actors when the state will not step in and fill that role. Mm. Um, the judge in the case ultimately agrees. He says that, you know, the fourth, 14th Amendment um, grants equal protection. Um, you know, it's equivalent to the, the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So you are granted all of the protections that are enumerated in the Constitution, which at the moment, right, this is, a, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you know, what Eric Foner calls the second founding, um, we were still trying to understand what these amendments could do, the, the extent to which these amendments protected Black Americans. Um, so, so the fact that in this case, the judge uh, kind of has this, this, um, this radical idea about how the, the extent of that protection, that that, ext that protection extends to, to Black people um, as far back as, as the Constitution, that, um, that is sort of stymied almost immediately, right? Even though the judge has this, this broad interpretation, um, ultimately no one is charged. There are no um, uh, there are no consequences. So it's sort of this impunity for for all of this. Immediately after he's acquitted, um, Jolly, who I mentioned a moment ago, uh, actually runs for office. You know, in 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 the county, and uh, and so essentially it, it just established that um, lawless violence that that. Um, you know, these efforts to to limit progress would not go punished. Um, and, and with that in mind, with the backing of subsequent court cases, the Crookshank case, the um, Slaughterhouse cases on, you know, through Plessy versus Ferguson, um, you know, you just have these, these cases that reinforce this idea that uh, Black citizenship is not on par um, with with white citizenship, that that, that the federal government uh, is not going to protect black citizens as, as vigorously, which allows these paramilitary groups like the Klan um, to sort of have free reign in in the South and elsewhere. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Adam Harris of the Atlantic, and we want to continue to hear from you. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter. 
Twitter for comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Did you ever have a car you loved that broke down a lot? You kept pouring more money in to keep it running, then one day it died for good. Well, WDET's radio transmitter is kind of like that car. Transmitters have a life expectancy of 15 to 20 years. Our main transmitter is 21 years old. And when it breaks down, it takes weeks to get a replacement part because unlike cars, the parts are not in stock. They have to be manufactured after you order them. Many families have a second car, and we have a second transmitter as backup. Our backup transmitter is 34 years old, and they no longer manufacture parts to fix it. Listeners own this station, and you have a right to know if we are taking good care of your property. We're trying, but it's time to invest in our most important piece of broadcast equipment. We will be asking for your help in our March On Air campaign, or you can give now at WDET.org. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest is Adam Harris, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the forthcoming book, The State Must Provide. He's also a contributor to The Atlantic's project, Inheritance, which is about his pieces about an historic riot in Utah, Alabama, and the deep roots of America's political legacy. We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about this moment in sort of our American conversation about the journey toward equality, the things that still stand in the way, the things in the past that help frame the inequalities that we see today? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter. We'll try to include you in the conversation that way. Let's start with Cynthia in Detroit. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. I'm so excited to be here. When I was listening to your program, you asked what helps to inform uh, Black history. And and, um, my event, well, the Detroit Talladega College Club in Talladega is right down the street from the gentleman that you were talking to from Alabama. Hmm. It's the oldest HBCU in Alabama. And we're having a history event surrounding the Amstad murals and the Amstad movie. And we're trying to call attention to this event, which was the only slave ship where they had a revolt and the slaves or the captives were actually set free. There are a lot of revolts, but this is the only one. And so we're trying to shed light on that, about the two court cases that they went through to the Mm. Supreme Court. And the fact that there's about 25 students from Michigan that are there. We have about 100 alumni in Michigan from there, and we're trying to raise money to support those children. Wow! Wow! So it's um. So Cynthia, so I, I'm really interested. I'm, I'm really interested in in what you're talking about, and and I want you to talk just a little about how you came to focus on that particular story and that particular part of. African American history. I think it's really, it's you know, as you point out, it's a it's a, a chapter of our history that doesn't get told a whole lot. Even though there was a pretty popular movie that 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 attempted to to inform people, but but tell me how 
you found your way to this part of uh, the missing narrative? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to say I'm fourth generation to attend Talladega College. Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather was the class of 79. My grandparents, excuse me, 1879. <laughs> my grandparents were the class of 1909 and 1910. And my mother, Dr. Vivian H. Ross, came out in the 70s. And um, so Talladega is something that I've grown up with. I came out in the 80s. And it's um, the story of the Amstad is very close to Talladega in that in 1939, the college commissioned Hale Woodruff, who is a teacher out of Atlanta University, to, to do these six murals. Mm. And that was on the 100-year anniversary of the, the Amstad mutiny. And they were commissioned to go into the new library of the, the Talladega College campus that time, Savory. So there's six panels. And when you go there, now they're housed in the Dr. William Harvey Museum of Art. That's a new building on campus within the last two years, funded by its namesake, Dr. Harvey, who's the president of Hampton University, hmm. who's a Talladega College graduate. Wow. So this story is something that we've known yeah. and we've tried to share. That's to say we Talladegans have known and we've tried <laughs> to share it broadly. And um, so that's how I, how I became familiar with it. Yeah. And after the movie, there are a lot of concerns about the accuracies or untold stories or sure. things like that. That's why we're having this event. Mm. And we'll have um, several panelists who can give the background of the full story. We have archivists who will be participating because the murals have been restored. Yeah. And they went on a state uh, national tour. Wow. And there was even a speaker from the Hyde Museum in Atlanta who came to the DIA and spoke about these, these um, six six pieces that yeah. formed the Amstad or Talladega wow. mural. So Cynthia, I am really glad you called and, and, and shared all that. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Adam Harris, uh, react to what she's talking about here. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to, to start this project um, is to explore that sort of history, right. To, to sort of um, replace it in the American narrative, not to replace, but but to replace it, to, to actually situate it as, as not some parochial offshoot of the American experience of um, American history, but but as a integral part of American history. And so, you know, any work that we can do to, to kind of further um, elucidate these stories, um, to, to, to further kind of drive at the central truth of these stories um, uh, and kind of do, the, do that kind of central work of excavating them is, is just of the utmost importance. And, and um, I imagine that'll be a great event. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Cynthia, thanks so much for the call and uh, for sharing your experience. Let's go to Gloria on the North End. Gloria, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Hi. <clears throat> um, yes, I just wanted to I'll comment on what's going on today, right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. following January 6th. We're, we're living history. The host just, I mean, the guest speaker just uh, told the story uh, from, you know, his father's time about how uh, the atrocity and the audacity of, of um, I came in late on the story, about how somebody ran for office you know, the impunity. And that's what we're being asked to normalize and accept as just okay by Mitch McConnell and Mm. the Republican Party that a man, Donald Trump and 
supported by Mitch McConnell and Republicans, that they can have an insurrection on our government and turn around and just talk about him running for office as if that's the most natural thing in the world. It To me, it appears like we're being asked to just accept this, uh, it, this in-your-face America yeah. that we'll do whatever we want. Yes. Uh, Gloria, Gloria, uh, you're you're absolutely right. And and that's reflected, I think, in the sort of over time narrative that's in Adam's piece, that that there are these steps forward and then there is this backlash uh, almost predictably uh, to, to those steps forward. I think that's part of what we're seeing. Uh, and, and part of what we saw on, on January 6th, uh, Adam, in your piece, you talk about several firsts. Uh, for instance, uh, August 11th, 1969, the first time that black people controlled the government in Greene County, uh, which was 80, which was 80 percent black. But that was the first time that they had control. You talk about 2019 when Stephen Reed was elected the first black mayor of Montgomery, Alabama. We continue to see this kind of seesawing back and forth of move forward uh, and then and then backlash. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, kind of the American story. Um, it's the story of, of progress, but it's also the story of, um, you know, violent reactions to that progress. Um, and, you know, I, I, in the piece with, with, with January 6th, in part, because, you know, as, as uh, the listener just mentioned, um, you know, there is this sort of impunity, mm-hmm. right. That that's embedded in this story that, that traces itself, from 1870 on on to now, um, and what she was referring to, I believe, was was uh, Senator McConnell um, saying earlier that uh, he would absolutely support uh, the president if yeah. he was the 2024 nominee, even even kind of despite the fact that he he sort of laid the blame for the January 6th insurrection directly on on uh, former President Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just you know thinking through America's political legacy, this legacy of progress of white backlash and then ultimately of impunity um, for that backlash. I, I just think that, the, you know, the parallels are, are um, you know, readily apparent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Adam Harris, staff writer at the Atlantic. It was really great to have you here uh, with us for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And you can see uh, Adam's piece in the Atlantic uh, magazine. All right. That is going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when I'm going to talk with State Superintendent Dr. Michael Rick, just as many students head back to in-person instruction here in the state of Michigan. We'll also have a conversation about NASA's new Perseverance rover on Mars. If you're like me, you've been watching these pictures and videos in absolute awe. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.